Thank you for tuning in to the Canada Abroad podcast. My name is Deanne Akers-Lance, and I am the Regulated Canadian Immigration Consultant for Canada Abroad. This week on the show, we're going to be speaking with Dylan, Louise, and Rain from Highway IELTS that are based in Durban, South Africa. They're going to be taking us through some of the most commonly asked questions relating to the test and giving us some advice on how to practice for the test and how to get ready for the test. So guys, thanks for joining with me today. And if maybe each of you wants to give the audience just a bit of an idea, you know, what your background is and what kind of experience you've had with the IELTS and how you started this company. Um, about five years ago, five, six years ago, my wife and I uh, were administering the exam in Durban and we noticed a lot of people were uh, repeating the, the test. So that was pretty much how we started and got involved in the preparation side for the exam um, from administering it to running some training workshops. That was pretty much the history that both my, myself and my wife had for bringing Dylan on to start working on more advanced courses and helping people in the, you know, the specific area of the exam. So uh, this is Dylan. I worked as an examiner for IELTS for a number of years in Southern Africa, the Middle East and Eastern Europe. And uh, in that time, obviously, I gained a lot of experience with the test and how it's how it's assessed and what it means for people in terms of uh, the language background you're coming from and how it interacts with your rating. And I, I stopped examining and when I met Rain and Louise, it just seemed like a perfect opportunity for synergy. And my role here is really to build the content and to meet the challenges that come up vis-a-vis uh, -vis people making it through the test or not and helping them achieve the scores that they need. Okay, great. And then do you guys work just in Durban or do you guys work in different cities in South Africa as well? Uh, we, we based, our offices are based in Durban, but we have venues across South Africa. At, at the moment, we're offering all of our training in Durban, Johannesburg and in Cape Town. And every alternate uh, weekend in is we held our training in Pretoria. So this is mainly for all of our in-person training that we do, uh, where we're bound to uh, venues across Africa. But we have dealt with many candidates who have contacted us and we've done tutoring online. So we've made up a list of a lot of common questions that people ask me either when they're researching immigrating to Canada or that, you know, Dylan, Louise and Rain have received from candidates. And we're going to go through them and try to answer those questions for our listeners. So the first question that we get is, you know, what is on the IELTS test? What did they test you on? What do we need be to be prepared for? Okay, so this is a, a really broad question, but it's an important one because people often end with misconceptions about what they're going to be tested on and IELTS is all it is is a test of your ability to communicate in English in written and oral form and it's nothing more than that so it's not a test of your general knowledge or your specialist knowledge in any particular area it's really a, it is exclusively a test of your communicative abilities in English and it tests you on four platforms the speaking listening reading and writing and each one of those modules is exclusively concerned the relevant skills in each of those areas. So in terms of the topics that you get, there's no way of predicting them, that you could be asked to speak and write about 
virtually anything, but all of the topics will be things that we all have experience of any and topics that anybody can relate to. So you're never going to be confronted with a, a question that requires you to have specialist knowledge of any particular topic, but you are going to have to demonstrate an ability to use the English language in a meaningful way to handle any potential topic that might come up. Okay, perfect. And I think this kind of ties in with another question we get a lot is, I mean, do you need to know what a noun and a verb and an adjective are, or is it, you know, more comprehension based? Right. So in terms of grammatical degrees and, and knowledge of how English works and the nuts and bolts of English grammar, that knowledge can be useful, but it can't be the, the focus of your preparation. So, you know, it could be that if you don't get the score that you need, it might be that your control of English grammar is, is a problem. And in which case, when we encounter people like that, then we do, we do get into those aspects. But at no point are you going to be asked like you would have experienced in high school, you know, to identify parts of speech or anything like that. Okay. Uh, because again, that, that's... Um, so definitely towards the second part of your question, it's more about... And you have to be able to comprehend spoken and written English and you have to be able to produce spoken and written English in a way that is really comprehensible to others. Okay, that's perfect. And I think, you know, you kind of mentioned this as well, as a lot of people are concerned because, you know, people immigrating to Canada, they're all ages, and some individuals haven't had to write a standardized test in quite some time. So they kind of ask, you know, is it similar to an English test you would have written in matric, or is it more university level? That That's a great question. It, it, to be honest, IELTS is is not a walk in the park, and it is going to stretch more than than what you would have experienced on a matric English language qualification, uh, be, precisely because there's no you, you can't memorize answers, you can't uh, you can't study specific content. Um, it really is just targeting your your language ability. So, in terms of difficulty and, and what it's comparable to. Uh, the writing module certainly is more comparable to what you'd experience in a university or, or tertiary level education. Um, uh, so at that level, and I would say the same for reading. The writing and the reading both uh, will extend you to something approximating university level, whereas the speaking and the listening are definitely more communicative. Um, and so I wouldn't make the same assessment of those two. But overall, you need to be ready for quite a substantial challenge when you do okay. and like you said it's not something you know that you can memorize in order to prepare for so what skills would you say that you need to develop to successfully tackle the IELTS examination right so that question I think is best answered uh, in terms of each of the four tests so the speaking listening uh, writing and reading for the speaking test the main skills you need to have are an ability to to improvise on a topic that you you that you haven't seen before and it's just it might be something that's out of your comfort zone so you need to be able to speak flexibly and naturally and convincingly on a topic um, whatever topic you're given you need to be able to respond appropriate questions you need to especially in part three you need to have an appreciation of nuance in an interlocutor and for part two, you need to be able to speak for two minutes on your own, which is something we don't tend to do in our daily lives. So in terms of the, for the speaking test, those, those are the kinds of skills to develop. For listening, you 
to be able to do a number of things at once. So you need to be able to listen and and record information all at the same time in the context of a high pressure situation where you're only going to hear the input and you need to be able to read very closely. You need to be able to understand uh, sort of subverbal cues about uh, a speaker's feelings about a topic. Um, so you really need to be able to listen with comprehension. Uh, in terms of reading, similar, you need to be able to, to deploy various sub-skills. So skimming and scanning, those are distinct skills that you, you need to be quite good at to handle the IELTS reading test. You're not going to have the opportunity to read for leisure. You really have to read in a very strategic way. Um, and you also have to be able to read between the lines. So the higher order questions will require you to be able to discern the writer's point of view and to make judgments about, uh, about that point of view. Um, so again, it's a complex set of skills. And for writing, um, and I've saved that one for last because it tends to be the one that trips people up, you need to be able to compose a cogent response to a question. Uh, you need to be able to do so under pressure and under time constraints. You need to have, you need to have a, a great deal of control over grammar and lexis and you need to be able to punctuate and compose sentences accurately. So writing, like all the others, is a, a concept of interlocking skills. And if you have a weakness in any particular one, it might hamstring your efforts, even if you're doing well in all the others. Okay, that's a very good description of, you know, what they can expect and what skills they would need. And I think, you know, a lot of people hearing that are going to ask, can I study for this test? Is there anything that I can do to prepare? Well, yeah, so the word study, I mean, in terms of memorizing or, or learning content, no. Uh, but you know, so the, the word, I would shy away from the word study, just not to avoid giving the wrong impression. You can certainly prepare and you can certainly practice all of those skills because all of the skills that I've mentioned there are, are learned behaviors, they're learned skills. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter your educational level, or your, your intellectual level, none of those things, uh, you know, IELTS is indifferent to all of those things. It, it really is a question of fine-tuning those skills, and, and definitely they can all be learned. Some of them take longer to develop than others. So if you are looking to prepare for the IELTS, you need to give yourself ample time to do that. And if you're looking to refine or improve a score because you didn't get the score you needed on a particular element, then that can take even more time depending on what the problem is. So you know you can't you can't anticipate you can't memorize and you can't uh, study per se but you can definitely prepare and it's a, you know um for example a clb9 um the equivalent scores on ielts for something like that are actually quite a realistic goal um so definitely not a gloom and doom situation there's a lot that you can do to improve your chances and on average you know, how much time should someone give themselves to prepare for this test? Because a lot of people say, OK, I'm going to take the first available booking, which maybe gives them a few days. Would you say on average they need a few weeks, a month? What do you guys think from your experience? Yeah, so, you know, it's uh, it's difficult to have a one size fits all, but we generally say six weeks as a safe, um, uh, a kind of safe, even if you're a, a first language speaker and you have a high level of education, there, there's a lot to know before you go in and there's a lot of information to consider and that it takes time to digest all of that. And the kind of task that you're given in IELTS um, 
might not match up exactly to to how you're using English in your daily life or in your in your workplace, and it might take some adjusting to a kind of new paradigm. So six weeks, we usually we usually give that as a general benchmark. Then, depending if it's a person who's have who has to retake the test, uh, we've had some clients who have been with us for about two or three months before we felt that we can actually honestly tell them that they're ready to take the test. Um, and you know, if your English is just not up to standard, then you might you might need to look at taking even longer than that, perhaps a six-month program to get you really ready. And then we either expand or contract it, depending on. And I would also just like to add that it also depends on the format of exam that you are taking. So with the paper-based exam, you will want 14 days to get your results back. Whereas the computer-based exam, the results come within seven days. So that also impacts the the duration that someone um, actually has to put aside um, with this whole process. Okay, no, that's that's very good to know because um, I think a lot of people who have written this test before and are now maybe re-looking at doing it for immigration, the computer-based test wasn't available um, before, I think, 2019 last year is when they implemented it? That's correct. Okay. So that's going to be useful for some people. I know that uh, a lot of people said the venues, they just found them to be better equipped um, at those computer venues and you get a headset, which made it easier to listen. And I think that you kind of leads into the next question is who puts on this test? Is it just, you know, one specific service provider? Is there different companies that put this test on? Who do people need to book with? Currently in South Africa, the British Council is the only company that offers the actual exam. Um, but in terms of the companies who own IELTS, there are three of them. Um, it's the British Council, IP Australia, and Cambridge. Okay. And in South Africa, it's just the British Council that they can use. And how much um, does it cost to write this test each time? Yeah, it depends on where you live in South Africa, uh, but you know, an average cost to write the test is 4,000 Rand. And um, they're currently offering the test uh, in five different locations across South Africa. There's Durban, Johannesburg, Pretoria, Cape Town, and in Port Elizabeth. Um, going back to the 4,000 Rand, uh, this again, you know, it's for first time and for those repeating the test. And, you know, unfortunately, we do see a lot of people who are repeat test takers and the cost that you just do not need, especially within this process. Um, so it's advisable to get it done first time. Now, for those that um, do have to write it a second time because they are able to do so, the question we get asked a lot is, OK, maybe I just did poorly in my written section. Can I just rewrite the written section or do I have to do all four sections over again? Unfortunately, you have to write the whole thing all over again and you have to pay, of course, the entire price um, to rewrite, um, which is, you know, for some people, it's quite because the um, institutions and employers with all of your required marks on one certificate. So yes. if you rewrite and you get 6.5 in your writing, but you needed a seven, 
and then in your second time you get your seven for your writing but you get a 6.5 for your reading that can also cause people to rewrite and rewrite multiple times because you get those marks on the certificate yeah and if i could add to that it's 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 quite unfortunate you know as a business you know we want to help people succeed in the arts exam but quite often the people who come to us have already written and they realize how difficult it is. And then only they, they start to seek guidance and help. So, you know, it, it's actually very rare that we get to deal with people who haven't written the test and that they succeed in their first time around. Yeah, and we see it uh, quite a bit. And like you guys have mentioned in a few questions, that the written section seems to be the one that most people are having to repeat over again. So I think, you know, and we suggest this as well, it really is useful to rather just do a course before writing this test because like you said it's almost four thousand rand per time usually our workshop is a lot cheaper than that um it's better to prepare ahead of time than to have to do this more than once now um i think louise mentioned earlier that once you've written the test um, for the paper-based it's 14 days to get the results back and then for the computer-based now it's seven days is that correct yeah okay great and with those results, do they um, get them online first or do they get the certificate mailed to them? Is there a difference between the two times for those um, results? So they actually receive the results electronically and a, um, a copy of the results in the certificate. Um, obviously, the electronic copy comes a lot sooner than the hard copy. On the 14th day to the T and likewise for the seven days, you get an email with your results. Um, that's just to let you know how you've done. Most institutions um, or employers won't actually accept the electronic copy. So the British Council courier the certificates with your marks and your photograph and you know, the official IELTS certificate, they courier that to the client. Um, and that's that's a couple of days after they their electronic results back. Okay, so at least they'll have the results, you know, available. And I think that's, you know, a question that we've seen as well is, have you ever seen it happen that you get your electronic results and then when you get your certificate that they don't match? Mm -hmm. Has that ever happened? Not as far as I'm aware. And I did actually have lot of the administration um, when we were doing the test um, ourselves but yeah I know that I was always dealing with people who um, wanted to send this back for remarks. <laughs> yes and this is a very common question at the moment is you know how is this test marked and is it worth getting a remark or requesting one if you didn't get the scores that you needed or there are certain sections that it's more likely that a, a remark would come back positively and some sections that maybe because it's multiple choice that it would not? Right. So in terms of how the, the exam is marked, it, it differs according to the each subtest. So your speaking and writing tests are assessed by a, a human examiner. And there's, a, there's a, a lot of oversight over those processes. So the examiners are, are trained and monitored every recording um, and then the the reading are marked by a team of markers according to a memo and those results are input and on the computer obviously it's an 
that does that. And then all of that, the, your scores are, are weighted and, and that the, taken together, they generate your overall band score. Um, yeah, and then in terms of a remark, never, ever, 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 no, no, don't ever apply for a remark. That was one of the first things that I was taught um, because the examiners are so highly trained. Um, and of course, IELTS has got one of the best reputations um, as far as English proficiency exams go. The, the level of security is just so high that what you get is a honest, you know, it's an honest assessment um, of your current skill. So to ask for a remark, it's quite expensive. I think it's edging about between 2,000 and 3,000 rand or so. Okay. This is just a side note. Um, we've actually sent a lot back where the, the clients got nines and a 6.5 in writing, and they've actually gotten it up to a seven recently. There's been quite a, quite a few clients that we've had it happen with the remark. Just after that, it, it, you know, when, if there's more than a two-point variance, like what you described there, um, that, that immediately gets and everything has to be remarked. Um, so it, it's very interesting to hear that uh, because generally the, the reason we use, we've in the past we've advised people, especially if they have more than a two point variance between two tasks, is that that's already been filed two different examiners. Um, but it's very interesting to hear that you've had a, a 0.5 increase on a remark. Yeah. And I mean, that's interesting what you just noticed. So if they actually see that someone, you know, has gotten a nine and listening reading and speaking and a 6.5 in writing, you're saying that it already automatically would have been checked a, a second time, that's their policy? Yes. Now, I just want to, you know, ask you guys, and I only know from Canada side, but a lot of people ask, which version of the test do they need to do? Do they need to do the general training or do they need to do the academic test? Right, so in terms of between those two, um, that's, it, it's a question that we, we're often quite reluctant to advise people um, purely because it can only really be answered by the agency or institution to which they're going. However, um, generally, a person in a in educational or medical or scientific or legal professions is, is going to have to do an academic, but that's not set in stone. I mean, we, there's some kind of that will allow you to get away with the general training for that. Um, and then you know, the general seems to be a catch-all for everybody else. Um, in terms of the further refinement there with UKPI and, and issues like that, those are just, it's exactly the same test. It's just done under different conditions. Um, so generally that question we, we're loath to answer without liaising with um, a person's agency, but sometimes we help people to actually understand what, what's being said to them by the institution. This is one of the reasons we, we really encourage people to, to stick with an agent. Yeah, and, and I mean, some people, what they're going to find, um, depending on what country they're immigrating to, is they might end up having to do both. Um, because for oh. Canada, they typically just have to do the general for the immigration process. But then if they have to get licensed with a professional body, depending on what school they studied with, and, you know, if it was english afrikaans or a non-english school they might also have to do the academic on top of it and get stuck having to do both versions so it is uh, very important for them just to check you know those things ahead of time because they may end up having to study for both 
Right. In that case, I mean, we the question that we're very well prepared is, you know, what is the difference between those? So when people ask us what is the difference between the general and the academic, the the, the differences come in with reading and writing. So the the writing test is quite different. The kinds of things you're asked to do on the academic um, are the, the requirements are a bit more stringent and it's a different the, the nature of the task is a bit different. Um, same training and then for reading. So we treat our um, our clients who are doing an academic test who have specialized modules to help them to deal with the requirements of that test because it is quite a difficult test. Okay, that's perfect. Now I know that you you know we've noted that there's a difference between the general and the academic. Is there a difference between someone who's going to do the paper-based test or the one that's done on the computer? Is there a difference between the two? It's it's a really interesting question and it's been coming up uh, more and more since they implemented the computer-based test. We're finding a lot of people are preferring the computer-based test, especially if they're just accustomed to typing because not many people write long-form prose by hand anymore. So a lot of people are are opting for the, 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 the computer-based one. However, as part of our response to changes in IELTS, we've noticed that people tend to make different types of errors when they're typing as opposed to when they are with pen and paper. So, you know, if, if we know that a person is going to be doing the computer-based test, we try to prep them to just anticipate those kinds of errors, errors that are typical for typing. Um, in terms of the, that's for reading, for, for listening and, and reading, we've found that there's really not much difference. People have told us that they find the experience actually easier on the computer and, and the answer the questions is, is different and a lot of people have responded quite positively but it really does come down to personal preference so if somebody's not in the habit of using a computer then of course it's not a good idea for them to take the computer-based test they should stick to the to the paper-based and vice versa a question that we have actually been asked about the computer-based test is you know with the speaking are they going to be speaking to the computer and it's recording their audio or are they going to speak to a person one-on-one -on -one? Because with Canada, some of the tests that they do for French, those people actually have to speak to a computer and it's recorded and then analyzed later. So, you know, with the IELTS, if they do do the computer-based, are they going to be doing the speaking one-on-one -on -one with a real person? So that's one of the nice aspects of doing IELTS is that whether you do it in, you know, paper form or computer form, you're always going to be speaking to a person. So it's a lot more natural for people to speak to a person and answer questions that a person has asked them rather than talking to a computer screen and having the computer actually time out on you and it's just very unnatural right. for many people. I was just to add to that, in 2020 um, they have implemented some small changes to the listening test, paper-based version, just to bring, bring it in line, more in line with the computer test, um, but currently that's the only change that that's been made, the speaking test, like Louise says, is still a face-to-face. -face. Mm, and the speaking test is also recorded. So in the room where you are with the examiner, there will be a recording device. Speaking test will be recorded. And I think this kind of leads into the, the next question that we get a lot is, you know, what can you expect on test day? What is the experience going to be like? Are these sections timed? And I think, you know, that might affect somebody's choice to do a written or a typed version, because if they know that they can type faster and maybe they are going to be timed, that could uh, affect the decision. So how does the, the test actually work on the day? The exam is really strenuous. Everybody, of course, it's an early exam. 
photographers. People have to arrive early at the venue, have their photograph taken, have fingerprints scanned. Um, you have to wait for everybody to arrive before the exam can start. Obviously, they do standard starting time, um, but it's quite a controlled environment. So you all walk into the venue at the same time. You are seated um, in your groups. So all of the academic students sit um, at their individual tables um, in like a cluster. And then all the general training students are sitting on another side of the venue. And it, it's quite scary because the, the invigilators, they patrol up and down the aisles to make sure that there's no cheating. Um, at the end of every section, the invigilators have to come and collect everyone's papers and then count everybody's papers up front and then count the papers for the next sections so they can hand them out and then everybody starts the exam at the same time. Yeah, and for many people, they haven't sat a formal test for a long time and now this is such a huge shock to the system. I mean, even if you want to take a toilet break, it has to be taken outside in your exam time. So you can't improvise um, and just think, you know, I'm going to use this um, checking time where all of the invigilators are checking the papers. You can't just go and have a toilet break or outside and get some fresh air. You have to say seated at your desk from the start of the day to the finish of the day. So, I mean, that can be about three and a half, four, four and a half hours, depending on um, how fast administration side is. Okay, well, that is, you know, a lot of people are not used to sitting at a desk for that long and not being able to, you know, have a snack. I mean, are they allowed even to bring water into the test? Um, well... <laughs> We've had mixed um, feedback. When we were offering the exam, you were allowed to bring a, bot a bottle of water, but it had to be in a clear bottle. So transparent, no words on the bottle. Um, the different venues allow snacks some point, so you could always try. Um, but I know if you have an eraser with you that has the cardboard or protector around it that obviously has the name of the brand and different information about the eraser the invigilators will come and remove it from your eraser and then yeah they remove in, a, in extreme cases if, if some a candidate has lower tattoos with a lot of writing they will actually look at that uh, they, they will just minimize the chances of you being able to have anything on in front of you during that test so just trying to cut down on any cheating or anyone having an advantage. So it's probably just best for people to assume, you know, I can't take anything in there that's going to have a lot of writing, like you said, whether it's, you know, the eraser or something else. And probably best just to plan that they're not going to have any food or drink in the venue as well. So they don't get a surprise on, on test day. And also watches, analog and um, smart digital, you know, analog digital and watches are taken away um, from everybody because, as you said, you don't want people to have an advantage um, above other people. So to keep it fair, there is a clock that's in front of all of the students. 
that's front of the venue so that they can um, monitor their time and make sure that within the hour of writing, they can watch their time go by. Okay, that's good to know. Now, for people that, you know, maybe they accidentally bring things and they invigilator has to take away, you know, their Apple Watch or something like that. Do they have a place to store those or do you need to go back to your car and lock it up? Do you know if that's maybe different from venue to venue? So, if, so first of all, they won't let you actually go into the venue to be seated if you have anything that they're not happy with. Um, so if you do have valuables um, such as your cell phone, car keys, um, driver's license, it all has to be handed over to the um, invigilators. Um, and they'll either store it in a lockable storage box or some of the venues um, even have little individual lockers you can lock your stuff up, but it does depend from venue to venue. Um, One important point I'd just like to add to this discussion is that when people book the exam and when they come they must ensure that they have the same form of identification. So if you've booked using your ID, you must bring your ID don't bring your passport or driver's license, you might actually be prevented from writing if you don't use the exact same document. Um, that's an issue that we've seen. Yeah, that's great to know because we, we've seen people do that as well. And, you know, maybe if they've booked with their passport and they know that they got a new passport in the meantime, would they have to update that before test date? Are they able to do that if that situation arises? I, I'm quite sure the British Council has an administrative procedure for that, um, but they'd have to contact the British Council well in advance to just ascertain that exactly and not leave it up to chance or anything like that because the, the invigilator is going to be able to help you because the system will just reject. Uh, so that's something that they would really have to contact the British Council uh, well in advance to ascertain. Yeah, don't even take a certified copy or even an affidavit. Um, definitely don't bring a an expired passport um, because it's you are going to be turned away and you won't be able to write your exam and then you're going to have to book it and pay for it all over again. Yeah, I was going to say, let me guess, they probably don't give you a refund either if you've, if you've made the mistake. Now, are there any um, tips that you can give on how people can prepare for this test? What do you guys find is the best method or is it just dependent on the person? Right, so the, the two categories that I would divide the question into are the first time test takers and people who have, or have to make a second attempt. If it's your first time taking IELTS, the best way to prepare, you know, coming back to what we said about a sick period, uh, is really to take a deep dive into IELTS, what it's all about, um, past papers, um, and, and just get a good understanding of the public versions of the rubrics. However, that in and of itself, you know, self-study can only get you so far. And what you really need, um, especially for the writing, but not only for the writing, that getting a bit of expert guidance on how you're doing in relation to the test standards is really, it's indispensable because you radically improve chances of not having to take the test again. So you've got to do a lot of you have to do some independent research, but it's even that it's best to do that under the under the umbrella of of an expert because there's also material out there um, dealing with IELTS that's either out of date, uh, you know, antiquated, 
using test scripts and past papers from the 1980s and the 1990s, and the test has moved on. And there's also just a, there's, there's just a huge amount of, of falsehood online. It includes, unfortunately, paying service. When, you, when you've worked in, with IELTS um, and you see what's being to a lot of people out there, it's quite discouraging, to say the least, um, that there, there's, there's just a lot of falsehood. So it's, quite a, it's a dangerous thing to navigate, uh, and you really need to make sure that you, you do so in a careful way. And the best way to do that is to consult experts on the subject to help you be selective and strategic, because also you don't have all the time in the world. So it's no point wasting your time perfecting the speaking test you're a mother tongue speaker and you speak really well you need to know where to channel your efforts if you are taking the test again um then you really need to you you're going to have to understand there's no there's not necessarily i mean for some people it is for some people when we assess them um it, it really just comes down to one or two things that they've been doing wrong and so we've had people who have taken the test you know multiple times and they're stuck for example on that 6.5 barrier for writing who are fortunate it really comes down to their assessment they do with us so it's just one or two technicalities that they're getting wrong but they happen to be technical details and requirements that are catastrophic with other people we, we sometimes identify a whole range of issues that can be um, to do with grammar with control of vocabulary with just general writing or reading skills and in that case they need to, they need to, you know, the amount of work that they're going to have needs to be a bit more than that. Um, but I'd say, yeah, if you, if you, if you're a test again, the the importance of getting hands-on guidance, not just a remote um, click and pay, a personalized and customized solution, especially if you're taking the test for a second time, is essential. Otherwise, you could just find yourself trading water and coming back with the same result over and over again. That's great to know and. I think this leads into a you know a major question and issue that we've seen. So for those that are trying to immigrate to Canada, for most of the applications, they need to get that CLB9 to be competitive and be successful. And we've seen a lot of people struggling to get the 7 in writing. They're usually getting about a 6.5. So what have you seen sort of is the likelihood of success for people rewriting the test if they come and get that training? Is it something that definitely, you know, is achievable if they're working towards it? Um, what is your guys' experience with that? It's definitely achievable. You know, a CLB level nine runs to an IELTS score of seven, as you said. And a seven, in terms of what the IELTS score represents, seven is definitely a realistic goal. For most people, or a nine for writing is not going to be a realistic goal and would be, you know, upfront for most people, that's the case. But a seven or a 7.5 is, is a realistic goal if you are um, communicating in English on a daily basis and you, you've studied in English and you are a speaker, whether as a first language or a second language speaker, seven is definitely not impossible. Um, however, when people are hitting that 6.5 barrier, you know, there there's a discrete number of things that can be causing that. With IELTS being so stringent, those the rubrics um, that the examiners follow in their mark your writing, the public version is really just the tip of the iceberg. So what the examiner is using is far more detailed than that. So the upside of that is that it it's actually very easy, possible at least, to pinpoint problems. The downside is that there are a lot of potential problems. So, you know, what that means for the candidate is that 
if you are stuck on 6.5, that you figure out what is holding you back. And there's a wide range of problems. There's a wide range of issues that could be going wrong in your writing. And that's not actually something that you can determine for yourself. Uh, because for two reasons, uh, one is that you're, it's very, very difficult to self-assess, especially when it comes to writing. Um, and secondly, you're, it takes years to really get a, a thorough understanding of how these rubrics work. And so with, with over two decades of experience amongst all the, the former examiners that work with us, we're really able to pinpoint. And the, the success that we've had, we, we've, we've seen really dramatic cases where people have actually given up and they've told their agents or, or their sponsors that they, they're kind of thinking of just staying behind and they've lost heart and then that's as a kind of last resort. And we've, we've been able to get a lot of people across that boundary. However, like I said, it's not a quick fix and some people are going to take a lot more work than others. The right guidance and crucially with that customized approach to these are your particular issues, these are your weaknesses and we need to, to target those instead of wasting time on on insignificant things or things that you're doing well already, we definitely have, we've, we've seen a lot of simply in helping people break through that. Yeah. That's, that's really good to know. Cause there are a lot of people that we've seen, you know, they've maybe written it once or twice and they are just giving up and they don't know that they can actually get assistance for this test. I think that they're on their own. So, I mean, what kind of services can you guys add? What, can you do for the client? Is it just workshops? I know you mentioned tutoring. Can you maybe give us an idea of the different services that you can assist people with? So the, the workshops are our first step and they're ideal for the first time taker or for somebody who has taken the test and fallen short in multiple areas. Um, and that gives you, the, the workshop is in-person, small classes with an experienced tutor a former examiner and that gives you an overview of the test and even in the workshop at that stage we do emphasize the writing because we anticipate that if people are going to stumble that's most likely where it's going to be the workshop also gives us a platform to to kind of diagnose any issues the tutor sees that a, a person's struggling with a particular aspect of the reading test we can flag that and there for the next step if people need further assistance we do offer our development programs so for each of the four tests, speaking, listening, reading, and writing, for a development package, and that's a blended learning model where we assign each person a tutor, and um, if, if people, like many people, are living in outlying areas or even outside of South Africa, uh, we're able to use um, it quite easily. So the first step is that we set up a, a, an entry interview. At that stage, the tutor really just wants to get to grips with the candidate and understand the entirety of your IELTS experience. What, you know, how, how did it go? How did you feel about this? Uh, what did you do? And, and go into a lot of detail because you can unearth surprising things. I mean, I've sat down with people who have told me within 10 minutes of a conversation that, you know, I've put all the right subheadings in my task too. And immediately that was a flag because that's something that you can't do. So, you know, thing, you can unearth things context of that conversation then after that they, for each of the tests we have a, an assessment tool that we get people to complete and that is to pinpoint exactly which areas the candidate is falling short in and thereafter we customize the development course to meet their particular needs and um, once the because all of the people we deal with well the vast majority are working people we have to structure around your schedule so, you know, we, we, we don't like to drag them out too long because 
the risk of that is that you start forgetting the things that you've learned that you've acquired early on in the course. But on a case-to-case basis, we'll time frame, and within that time frame, work through um, we work through a, a range of materials um, that that we've developed to to deal with these issues. And then there's an exit assessment to to gauge progress. And then only at that point, collectively, we get together and we will say can recommend that the person move on. So the development process is a very hands-on one. It's where a lot of work is taking place because as Rain mentioned, we 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 actually we don't get a lot of people coming to us on their first, unfortunately. So the, the development pro the development programs are there really to make up for the results of people not preparing in advance. Uh, and that's where I'm currently spending the bulk of my time in, in getting people through their whatever their particular ceiling is that they're not able to to progress through. Okay, now with these workshops, are they always on the weekend? So all of our uh, training workshops are held on Saturdays, twice a month, uh, whether it be in Durban, Johannesburg, or in Cape Town. They are in person. I think it's it's very important with this exam that we have the, the opportunity to meet with, with clients in person and assess their skills. Uh, it can be very difficult, you know, as a first-time which is mainly the group who do come to these workshops uh, to seek guidance and do online courses that are, you know, one size fits all program. So all of these workshops are done on Saturdays. And from these workshops, we are able to assess them and portion of those candidates will enter into our development programs, which then run in their own time and in the evenings during the week. Okay, so maybe for someone who can't make it work on a weekend, for whatever reason, kids, things like that, if they do a development, you know, program, then that's going to be on their own time and they can schedule that at their discretion? If it's a, if it's, if they've written the IELTS test and they know, you know, where they, their particular weakness lies, then they can. Um, however, if, if it's their first time writing the test and they are unable to attend a workshop on the weekend, uh, we can set up a consultation, which is done uh, during the week, during the week um, in an evening available on Skype. We run through the pretty much everything we would cover in the test, oh, sorry, in the workshop, um, just to get a better feel for where they may be going wrong and identify some of those weaknesses. And from there, we would advise to do a specific development course. Okay, that's perfect. Well, we've gone through all the common questions that we get. Is there anything else that you guys want to share, um, tips, bits of advice that you've accumulated over the years or after dealing with so many people who've been writing the test? Don't underestimate the arts test. <laughs> no matter how much experience you have as a professional speaking English, I think yeah, that's, that's actually, a, I'd, I'd say, quite, what I say quite often is just because you speak English, grown up in an English-speaking country, you've gone to an English school, don't think or assume that this is going to be a walk in the park. Go and seek some professional guidance before you book for your test. Allow yourself sufficient time before actually writing. I think that would be the main thing that we would want to communicate to people who are taking the test. Not even just people who have up speaking English or had education in English. I've dealt with many clients who have got you know their degrees in English and are teachers and lecturers and still battling with this exam so one other thing I'll just add to that is, is um, the feedback we've got from a lot of agencies and institutions is that the minimum requirement be a seven but 
uh, aim a bit higher because getting a higher score and improving your score above what's required can actually strengthen your application and make things easier for you in the whole process of immigrating. Yeah, and that's it's definitely true for Canada. I mean, people want to aim to try to get an eight in listening and then a seven in reading, writing, and speaking. But if they can get up to the CLB level 10, it can add extra points to their application, which is going to make it an easier and, and a quicker process. So if they aren't too nervous about the test, it still might be worth studying just to get those extra points. Um, so it's it's just good for them to, to think about that as well. That concludes this week's episode of the Canada Abroad podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope that you'll tune in to next week's episode. Thank you.